Parshat Vayigash. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's uh, Parsha share. Um, and we know the story that with which Parshat Vayigash begins. It's like a, a, a follow-on from previous uh, discussions in the previous Parsha. The narrative that ends last week's Parsha, Parshat Miketz, is the story of how Yosef HaTzadik Joseph had managed to come ha- somehow prevent his brothers from knowing who he was. They didn't recognize him. They had no idea. He did reveal himself to his brother uh, Binyamin. But what happened was that he'd, uh, he'd got into a situation where he had tricked his brothers into believing that Binyamin was going to have to stay behind because he had stolen something. And now Yehuda is going to step forward, Vayigash Elov Yehuda, is going to step forward and he's going to give Yosef HaTzadik, that's the beginning of this week's parasha, a long soliloquy. And we've spoken about this in previous years. Yehuda gives a long advocacy, a presentation, in which he expresses to Yosef his um, pleas, his uh, desire that Yosef, this king, he doesn't know who it is, this prime minister of Egypt, that he should let the brother go. He should let Binyamin go. Why should he let him go? Notwithstanding any of the crimes that they were being accused of, they have an elderly father who is in Canaan and who would be utterly devastated if, if, if Binyamin would be incarcerated by Yosef and never allowed to leave. That would have been a devastating piece of news to give to Yaakov Avinu, particularly because he had begged uh, the brothers not to take Binyamin and he had personally asked Yehuda to take care of Binyamin to make sure that he would be returned safely. Having lost the brother Yosef, uh, he didn't want to lose the last son of his favorite wife, Rochel, and that's who Binyamin was and he was extremely concerned that this would happen and now uh, Yehuda is telling Yosef, not knowing that it is his brother, he is telling Yosef, please, don't let this happen. It's happened once before. Don't let it happen again. Our father will not be able to live through this dreadful piece of news that we'll have to give him if you keep our brother incarcerated in Egypt. That's essentially the story that comes uh, at the beginning of Parshat Vayigash, following on all the shenanigans of the previous parsha, in which Yosef had not revealed himself and his brothers had not recognized him. I'm going to read you Tupsukim that are right at the beginning of Perek Memhe of uh, Parshat Vayigash. Vayomi Yosef Elechov, Yosef said to his brothers, Ani Yosef ha'oid avichai, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Vleyochlu echov la'anois oisai, his brothers were not able to answer him. Why? They were so dumbfounded in front of him. They were completely shocked at this revelation. And that is the first posuk, posuk base. Then we have posuk gimel. Yosef said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they came close, He said, I am your brother Joseph. The one who you sold into Egypt. So these two psukim are essentially this incredibly dramatic moment that took place between Yosef and his brothers. 
Until then, they had absolutely no idea who he was. He reveals himself. He says, Then he asks them to come close. And when they come close, he says, Yes, I'm your brother Joseph. And this is the moment of truth when everything, the penny drops, they suddenly understand everything that has ever happened to them. I'm going to read you a Gemara. We're going to see a little bit later that this Gemara is also reflected in a Medrash. In fact, in, it's in Medrash Rabba, it's in Medrash Tanchuma. But here it is in the Gemara. It's a Gemara in Chagiga Daftalat Amud Beis. The Gemara says, Rabbi Loza, Rabbi Loza, when he would come to this posuk, this posuk of Ayyome Yosef El Echov, Ani Yosef Aidavichai, he would cry, um, he would say, uh, he, this incredible rebuke, he says, if the rebuke of a man, flesh and blood, boss of Adam means of a man, was such an incredibly powerful rebuke that says Rabbi Eloza, so too is the the rebuke of God himself. How much more so are we going to be when we're faced with the ultimate rebuke of God? How much more so are we going to be shocked? Look, Yosef, we can say whatever you want. He may have been a king, he may have been in Egypt, he may have had very good cause to be angry with his brothers and to rebuke them. But in the end, he was only a man. Says Rabbi Lazar, if in the face of a rebuke like that, his brothers who were the Shiftei Kar, they were the holiest Jews on planet Earth at the time, they were dumbfounded, dumbstruck. What does it say? The Pasuk, they had nothing to say to him in response to his rebuke. They were dumbfounded, dumbstruck in front of him. How much more so are we going to be struck dumb? When we face the ultimate rebuke, the rebuke of Almighty God, after we have, are no longer humans on this planet, we're now a neshama standing in front of the Kisya Kovoid, and God is going to rebuke us, how much more so are we going to be Nivhalu Mipanov? That's the Gemara, and we're going to see it's a Mishnah. We're going to look at the Beis HaLevi. By the way, this is a well-known Beis HaLevi. It's a, it's a wonderful piece. You can look it up. It's on this posuk in Sefer Beis Halevi. And I, I just want to go through the whole thing because I think it's so powerful and so important to understand what's going on in this story that we learn this Beis Halevi so we can truly appreciate the dynamic, the drama of the moment. What it is that Yosef wanted from his brothers, why it is that the Gemara says what it says and the Medrash says what it says, and that we can truly understand the powerful uh, narrative that is presented to us here in the Torah about the originators of the Jewish nation, the 12 tribes, the sons of Yaakov Avinu. That's the posuk that we read, Perik Memhei Posuk Base. Says the Base Halevi. There's a lot to understand in this posuk. We really need to focus on it. We need to unpack it. All the words, the first thing we need to consider, says the Beis Halevi, is that all the words, everything that Yehuda said in his interaction, in his confrontation with Yosef, what did he say? I told you earlier that the 
the argument that Yehuda put forward in advocating for Binyamin's release was he was talking about the pain that his father Yaakov Avinu would suffer as a result of not having his son Binyamin back. As he said to Yosef, how can I go back to my father in Canaan? How can I go back to Canaan and I'm, and I'm going to be without his son Binyamin? And immediately after having heard this incredibly powerful argument, Yosef says, uh, excuse me a minute, I'm Yosef, by the way, is dad still alive? What are you talking about? Yehuda just said he was alive, so much so that he was concerned for his welfare and for his well-being if he didn't return with Binyamin. So what are you asking, Ha'od Avichai? And much more so, it's much more puzzling if you consider the fact that on their second visit to Egypt, they came twice to Egypt. Remember the first time when they came and Yosef recognized them, and then the second time when they came back, when they ran out of food, and Yosef um, uh, was, they were shown into Yosef's palace, into his, into his throne room or whatever it was, and they're standing in front of him. Guess what he said to them? Shalohem hashalohem avichem. He said, how's your father? Is he all right? He first thing he asked them, he said, is, is, is your father still alive? So he knew the answer. They immediately said to him, of course, he's alive. Father's alive. And we've, we're here as his messengers. We're here to obtain, to procure food because of the famine. And they haven't returned home since then. It's not like they had cell phones. They weren't WhatsApping with their father. I mean, why would circumstances have changed? They, I mean, it could be, by the way, that since the time that they had come to Egypt, that Yaakov Avinu had died, but they wouldn't know about it. They'd not received any messages. There was no communication that would have informed them of Yaakov's death. So if, if the first thing that they told Yosef was that their elderly father was alive, why would anything change between then and now? Makes no sense at all. Why would you ask them now for a second time? It doesn't make much sense. And even more, even more puzzling than this. Even if you're going to say, you know what, I don't quite understand it, but I'm willing to accept that there was a good reason that he asked them this question, not a first time, but for the second time. Okay, you asked a question. They never answered the question. At no point in, in the narrative that follows after Yosef said, do we see that um, that uh, the Yehuda or his brothers, that the tribes, the Shvatim, ever answered the question. What exactly was their answer? There's no answer to this question. So what's going on here in this posuk where it says, The question doesn't make sense and there was never an answer. So the Medrash Rabba, and here's the Medrash that I quoted earlier in the Gemara, but here it is as the Medrash, it's in someone else's name, Aposuk Zeh Omar Abba Koyen Bardala. Abba Koyen Bardala was another Tana, and he says in the Medrash as follows, Oilonu miyoyim hadin, woe is to us the day of judgment, Oilonu miyoyim hatoycheicho, woe is to us, beware of the day of rebuke. Yosef Ketanon Shel Shvatim, Yosef was the youngest, 
of all the Shvatim, of all the children, or at least he was of the youngest, of all the, of all the sons of Yaakov Avinu, they were all older than him. And they weren't able to respond to his rebuke. They were dumbfounded, they were dumbstruck in front of him. How much more so? If God confronts us with Teichecha on the Yom Hadin, on the Yom Teichecha, how much more so we're going to be dumbstruck? If Yosef, who's a cotton for all intents and purposes, was able to strike his brothers dumb, in that situation, how much more so are we going to be struck dumb when we are confronted by Hashem on the Yom Hadin and on the Yom Teichecha? Gam Yesh Lahovin says the Beis HaLevi, really to understand. Um, what exactly was the Teichecha here? I don't hear any Teichecha, says, um, says the Beis HaLevi. What's the Teichecha? It, it doesn't make much sense. The reason they were dumbstruck in this situation was not because he told them off. He hadn't rebuked them. The reason they were dumbstruck, why they were unable to respond to what he said, is because he sh totally shocked them. He threw them. They were, they were caught off guard by this information that their brother Yosef was still alive. That's really why they were dumbstruck. There's no Teichecha here. And we really need to understand as well why the Medrash splits this into two. Meaning what? Medrash, but this is not in the Gemara, but the Medrash says, Woe is to us, or beware of the Yom Hadin. There seems to be two things mentioned here. It's split into two. One of them is the Yom Hadin, a day of judgment, and one of them is Yom Techecha, which is a day of rebuke. Maudin or Maudechecha. What is the difference here? What differentiation, what distinction is the Medrash making here between Din on the one hand and Teichecha on the other? That's the question of the Beis HaLevi. Uh, there's other bits of the Beis HaLevi. I've really drawn out the essence of the Beis HaLevi so that we can get what is the, a classic commentary. And it's been widely accepted as the only answer to these questions. The Beis HaLevi is the definitive um, explanation, the definitive commentary on these uh, two psukim at the beginning of Parshas Vayigash. And what you need to understand, what um, says, what, what it appears to me is the explanation for this, is that the Medrash is directing us away from a literal understanding of the Psukim and directing us in a totally different direction, Identify, uh, identifying for us the idea that this Pasuk, these two Psukim actually, are a reflection of what was going on here. And essentially what Yosef was doing is he was rebuking his brothers. Now we need to unpack that. We need to understand how that works in the words of the Pasuk, but that is what the Medrash wants to convey to us. Okay, let's see how it works. The second Pasuk, 
And here really is the ultimate understanding. We need to look at the second pasuk in order to understand the first. After they were dumbstruck, after they were unable to answer him, he says, you know what he says? He doesn't say, Ani Yosef. The first pasuk he says, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef. The second time, the second pasuk he says, Ani Yosef Achichem, I'm Yosef, your brother. What's he saying? So the second time he mentioned the fact that he's their brother because he wanted to give over this feeling of brotherliness, the fact that he felt in a brotherly fashion towards them, that he loved them. He considered them to be his brothers. The first time he doesn't say that. He just says, The second time he says, What is that? And what's the code here? What's the underlying meaning? He only said to them, he didn't convey to them this feeling of brotherliness, of love that he would have for them as a brother. When he revealed to them that he was Yosef, you, do you see what's going on here, says the Beis HaLevi? When he originally revealed to them that he was Yosef, he wasn't trying to pacify them. He wasn't trying to relieve the tension. It's completely the contrary. He wanted to increase their fear. They, by the way, were fearful enough. They're standing in front of the ruler of Egypt. He has the power of life and death over them. He's arrested and incarcerated their brother. He's already trumped up charges against them by planting um, the, uh, the gvia in their luggage. And they know that this man has the power to do anything. Now, they don't know who he is or why he's doing it. Now he says, Ani Yosef. Oh, gosh. Now we understand. He's Yosef. He hates us. And he's been tricking us all along by pretending to be friendly. He hates us. Ani Yosef, he said to them. I am Yosef. Do you know who I am? I'm the one who you sold into slavery in Egypt. Now I've got control over you. They're now shaking in their shoes. This is a man who wants to battle against them. He is in a confrontational mode. He's going to completely destroy them. He's, he has accused them of things that they've never done. False accusations he has leveled against them. Now they know why. He's not some random guy who doesn't like them, who's accused them of spying. He has every reason to hate them and to punish them and to cause them unbearable harm. Do you know who he is? He's Joseph. He's the one that they did bad to all those years ago. Now they've fallen into his hands. Now he has control. He has power over them. He can do with them exactly as he pleases. Ani Yosef, he says to them. I am Yosef. Do you know who I am? You thought you're in control. You're so clever. You thought, Yehuda, you're going to come forward. You're going to advocate. I'm Yosef. I'm in control here. Now you're in trouble. Anybody in their shoes would consider their situation to be over. Their lives are over. They're in grave danger. Because who in his position wouldn't avenge the bad that they had done to him? Even much later on, when he obviously reconciled with them and behaved towards them in a brotherly fashion, 
and it was a loving family, even later on, they were constantly on guard, constantly nervous. And even much more so when Yaakov died, when Yaakov was still alive, they were somewhat less wary. But once Yaakov died, they were extremely concerned. They became very, very concerned that he would take uh, um, revenge against them. Because they thought maybe now the Yago, okay, the reason that he didn't kill them earlier on was they made in their mind some kind of logical deduction that the reason he'd never harmed them was because he was concerned he didn't want to bother Yaakov, his father. But now Yaakov's dead. Oh, now for sure, he's going to kill us, he's going to murder us, he's going to torture us, he's going to do everything bad against us. Why? Because they knew that if he did so, he'd have every right because of the terrible thing that they'd done to him. Notwithstanding the fact that he'd managed to extricate himself from the situation and he wasn't a slave and he hadn't died, but they know, he knows, that they had wanted to kill him. He knows that they had sold him into slavery. He knows that they'd given up, given up on him. They'd never looked for him. They'd lied to their father. They told the father that he was dead. What normal person in that situation wouldn't want to uh, avenge his own terrible circumstances? The Afki Atabavadai. Okay, so now that we understand that they're really, really frightened, we can understand why it says that they were so frightened from him, of him, that um, as the Pasuk says, um, that they were, uh, they couldn't say anything, they were dumbstruck. Do you know why? Because now they know he's Yosef, not Yosef Achichem, Yosef. Now we understand the question, it wasn't a question that he wanted an answer to, it was a rhetorical question. It wasn't a question, it was rhetorical, it was simply to make a point. He was making a powerful point. As uh, um, the Beis HaLevi's already explained in his introduction to this piece, that question made no sense. It has already been answered. There was no new information that they could give him about their father because they hadn't heard from their father since they'd given him the answer to the question when it was originally asked when they returned to Egypt the second time. There was nothing more to say about the matter. So what do you mean, Ahoy Davichai, says the Beis HaLevi? It's not a question. The Medrash wants to tell us it wasn't a question. It wasn't a question, it was a rhetorical statement. It was like an undermining rhetorical question. Hey, Hatema, how could you? That type of question. Tema means a type of question that is accusatory. How could you? Really? This is what you did? He's asking them almost sarcastically, I am Yosef, you know who I am. Ha'oid avichai? Is my father still alive? What does he mean? He's saying to them, I can't actually believe that dad is still alive after all the pain he has suffered. Do you know why he suffered that pain? Because until now, he still doesn't know my, my, uh, my situation. He doesn't know what's happened to me. He doesn't know that I'm alive. He thinks I died. 
How is it that dad is still alive after all the pain and suffering that you've put him through? He was, he was, through these three words, what a powerful statement he was making to them. Really? His father's still alive. And and much more so, he was undermining the argument that Yehuda had presented him with when he had advocated for Binyamin's release. Because what was Yehuda saying? Don't do this to dad. Don't do this to our elderly father. He can't handle the pressure of losing another child. He can't handle the pain of losing a son. What's going to happen to him, Yosef? If you take Binyamin, how is he going to survive such a terrible piece of news? You can't do that to him. This these three words, this statement of Yosef, this rhetorical statement presented as a question, but really a statement, Ha'oid Avichai, was meant to undermine completely everything that Yehuda had said. How is it possible, Yosef was saying to them, if you're so worried about father's uh, good health, if you're so worried about his state of mind, if you're so worried about depressing him or pushing him over a cliff, how could you sell me? You know he loved me. You know I was his favorite child. So now you're saying, don't do this to Binyamin. Well, you weren't so worried when it was about me, were you, you hypocrites? That's what he was saying. Ah, so you're trying to say you're worried about father? Mm, I don't think so. I don't take that. I don't think it's a very convincing argument. That's what he was saying them. And even more so, he was saying to them, you know what? He seems to have managed without me for 20 years. If he could manage without me for all that time, um, uh, so if he, sorry, if he, he says, you know, if he can manage to live without me, he can live without Binyamin as well, no problem. So what he was really doing one was he was presenting them with their own act as an argument against what Yehuda was saying. Yehuda had come up with this brilliant presentation. What a fantastic lawyer. Wouldn't you want to have him as your trial lawyer defending you in court after putting forward the powerful argument? How could you do this to our elderly father? And now he says to him, really? That's your argument? Who are you, you hypocrite? You did exactly the same thing as you're accusing me of potentially doing to Binyamin. You did with Yosef. I know. Do you know how I know? Because I'm Yosef. I'm the one. Ani Yosef. So don't give me this nonsense about father not being able to tolerate the terrible news of losing his son. He seems to have managed without me for 20 years. He'll manage without Binyamin as well. Thank you very much. And you know what? His brothers were utterly dumbstruck. That Teichecha was so powerful. Five words. Five words. Ani Yosef Ha'oid Ovi Chai. That's all he needed to say. They were not able to respond to him. Do you know why? Because it completely undermined them. It totally undermined anything that they claimed to stand for. They were stripped bare of any credibility 
by what Yosef said to them in those five words, Ani Yosef ha'oid avichai. Bezeu shesim ha-medrash l'keshayov ha-kodesh baruch ve'yoichiach l'chol echod l'fi ma'shehu. And that's what the medrash means when it says that we need to be fearful of the day of Teichecha, the day of Din, the day of Teichecha, because God is going to judge you by who you are. Dictate Vaamalafi Mashehu. The Medrash is very specific in the wording. Lemisha Mashehu, that person. That's what God is going to catch you out on. You should know that when your Neshama is standing in front of the Kisei Akovoid, after you've passed on, guess what? You're not going to be challenged by somebody else's deeds or by somebody else's hypocrisy. You're going to be challenged by your own hypocrisy. You will be completely undermined. Your credibility will be completely undermined, not by somebody else, no, not by comparison with another person, but by comparison to who you are. Your deeds will totally undermine your claim as to why you behaved in a particular way in a different area of your life. Let me explain, says the Beis Alevi. He gives a beautiful explanation. He says, you know what? We all sin from time to time. Hopefully less than more, but we all, we are um, tempted by temptation. I mean, that's what temptation means. But we rationalize. We're very good at rationalizing. It's part of the human condition. We rationalize. We come up with excuses. Terutzim, as the Beis HaLevi puts it. Everybody's got a good teretz for why he behaves in a particular way. Because everybody thinks, I'm doing the best I can. And what I'm doing isn't that bad. You never, nobody ever walks up to you and says, you should know, I'm a terrible person. I'm a very bad, I'm a good person, but sometimes I don't do the best thing. But there's a reason why I haven't done the best thing. That's the, that's the human condition. Okay. I'll give you an example, says a base I'll give you a very good example. Somebody doesn't give stocker. Their people are not that charitable. So why aren't they charitable? He rationalizes why he doesn't give stocker. Do you know why? It's, I, I struggle to make enough money to pay my bills at the end of each month. I've got so many duties and responsibilities relating to my b'nai bias, to the people who, for whom I am responsible. I don't have extra money to give to other people. That's what somebody says. Somebody who's not so charitable, a bit of a miser, doesn't like giving charity too much. He doesn't think he's not charitable. He says, I'm a very charitable person. And of course, if I won the lottery, most of it is going to charity. But the fact is, I struggle to make ends meet. It's not possible for me to pay for everything that I need to pay for and also to give money to charity. The truth is, it's not a very good rationalization, particularly as it says in the Gemara in Gitten Dafzain, if somebody sees that they don't have enough in their lives to supply what they need to eat, to feed themselves, etc., Yase mehem tzdoki should take from his mazonas and should give it to tzdoka. It's a riot. It's a, a little bit counterintuitive, says the Gemara. If you see you don't have quite enough, you know what you should do? Give more tzdoka. That's going to give you the schus you need to get more from the Rabbein Shalom. Because if the Rabbein Shalom sees you giving tzdoka, 
then the Rabbanisham is going to give you more because he sees that you're a tzedakah giver. You might think, no, no, I've got to tighten my belt and not give tzedakah. Quite the reverse. If you see you're struggling a little bit, find a charitable cause and give some charity. And the benefit of that charity, you'll see things will get better for you. That's what the Gemara says in Davzayin and Gittin. oni. Even a poor person who themselves receives money from charity in order to get through their month, they should also be charitable. Yaset stocker. They need to. That's what the Gemara says in Gittin. It's a very powerful Gemara. Says the Beis Alevi. So you see, it's not a particularly good excuse to say the reason I don't give stocker is because I just about have enough for myself. Quite the reverse. That's the moment to start giving stocker. But in any event, that's the excuse that people make. That's the example the Beis Alevi gives about the power of rationalization in the sphere of charity. By the way, this also applies to every other aspect of life. People who are weak, and whatever their weakness is, always make excuses and they say, the reason I behave this way in that particular situation is because I, I can't really help it. My circumstances push me in that direction. What should I do? What do you expect of me? I'm still a good person. I just, in that, I have a particular weakness there, but I have a, a good excuse that can explain it. The truth is, you do have a bit of an excuse. One can understand somebody rationalizes on that basis. The truth is, somebody who does say that, on the face of it, at least the rationalization does make sense when compared to somebody who's very wealthy who's a miser. If you see somebody who's got a lot of money, he's got a tremendous amount of wealth, he has all the resources in the world and they're not charitable, you can say, okay, listen, compared to that guy, what do you want from me? That guy doesn't give charity and I don't give charity, but what do you want from me? I don't have that much money. If I had as much money as that person, of course I would give charity. And look at him, he has got that much money and he doesn't give charity. So the punishment that would be due to the person who is wealthy and doesn't give charity is going to be much greater by comparison to the Oynesh, to the retribution, let's call it, to someone who is poor and is not as charitable as perhaps they could be or should be. So if it is, it is going to be retribu divine retribution for your lack of charitableness, for your, for your lack of charitable giving, it's not going to be quite the same, one might think, as someone who is, uh, um, who is in every respect able to give charity and to be philanthropic. All right. So that's, that's the, the point the Beis HaLevi wants to make to introduce the next point, which is much more powerful. Omnom. At that stage, says the Beis HaLevi, Marim Lomi Masov. We're going to use his own actions in every other sphere of his life. We're going to show him. We're going to see that that person who claims that he doesn't have enough resources to give charity, when it comes to many other aspects of his life, not particularly important ones, in fact, thoroughly unimportant ones, he's willing to spend quite a bit of money. For example, you'll see that that person sometimes spends money to get something which is actually forbidden to them. Suddenly they've got the money. Suddenly the money is available to them. I covered, or they want to buy a little bit of honor. They want to get attention for themselves. Oh, suddenly they can write the check. They can give their credit card. Some, suddenly they're willing to give money because they're going to get something back for it. That transaction they're willing to do 
they, they won't give the charity, but they'll, they'll make sure they want to get their tava, or that they want to get their kavod, or avur machloikas. Oh, you see how much money people are, are willing to pay in order to involve themselves in some polemic, in some dispute. Ah, suddenly they've got plenty of money. Somebody was going to ask them for something which is negative. Sure, I'll support the negative cause. That makes a lot of sense. But come and speaking in his era, how much money, says the Beis Alevi, people are willing to give to educate their children in things that they shouldn't be educated in. How much money people are willing to give for a bunch of nonsense, for things which are, as Shlomo HaMelech says, Hevel Havolim, they're just not worth the effort, and yet suddenly the resource becomes available. How come in that situation you didn't rationalize it? You know, I don't want to do that particular thing. I don't want to waste money on that tava, on the covet, or the machloikas, or anything else that really is not that necessary or that I shouldn't be doing. How come in that situation I say, you know, I'm not going to spend the money because I don't really have the resources to do it. There, you're quite happy to take out your credit card and give the money. You're quite happy to write the check or to give the cash. But when it comes to a charitable cause, you say, excuse me, I don't have enough money to finish my month. I'm certainly not going to spend it on charity. So you're going to be undermined. Your credibility is going to be undermined by your own actions. It's going to be much worse for you than the Oisha. The Oisha may not have the excuse. He's not going to rationalize. Somebody's going to say to the Oisha, why don't you give money? He's going to say to the wealthy man, how come you don't like giving charity? I don't like giving charity. Yes, I've got plenty of money. I want to keep it in the bank. I want to make investments. He's not making excuses saying, I can't give charity. He's saying, I can give charity. I choose not to give charity. That's my choice. It's the guy who's in denial about charitable giving. That's the guy who's going to get greater retribution. You know why? Because he's going to be judged massive. Neged Masov. He's going to be judged action versus his own action. That's what the Beis Alevi is telling us. Everybody's going to be judged by the, the person themselves. They're going to be judged by somebody else. Don't give me that there's a gvir up the road or in the neighborhood or that you're aware of because you're reading about him in the newspaper that that person didn't give enough charity. Don't talk to me about the other person. Talk to me about yourself. At that point, when it's your neshama and your actions and your rationalizations that are standing up there in front of the Kisya Coven, in front of God's holy throne, and you're going to be challenged about your particular weakness, and you're going to come up with the excuse to say, well, what do you want from me? Suddenly, your own actions are going to be used against you, because in every other situation, that weakness or that challenge wasn't used as an excuse. It only comes to the particular aspect that we're discussing now. Suddenly, you're rationalizing. You never rationalize anything else. You weren't consistent. In fact, you're a hypocrite. Each person will be judged by their own deeds, by their own actions, by the things that they do. That's why the Medrash divided the, uh, the one into two. What does that mean? The first part is why didn't you do something? And you can say, I didn't do it, I was a naughty boy. I should have done it. But that's stage one. Stage two is because you're going to be judged 
on the Avera itself, the, sorry, the din is when you're judged on the Avera itself. But the Teichecha, the rebuke, is like Yehuda, who was rebuked by Yosef when he says, Ani Yosef Don't give me this concern that you seem to have just cooked up uh, for dad, that you say he's going to die if he loses his son. Huh? You weren't that concerned when it was me. Ani Yosef, I'm the one, I should know. Ha'oid still alive. Oh, so you weren't that worried then. Don't be too worried now. Don't be... The din is the, is the bad deed in and of itself. But the Teichecha is for the rationalization that every human being allows themselves the liberty to, at least they lie, them, they lie to themselves. It's a form of denial that we want to believe we're good people and therefore we use the rationalization as a way of saying, well, we're actually a good person. No, you've got to work on yourself. You've got to make sure that you're consistent, that you're somebody who performs, not that you lie to yourself and to others about who you really are. The Yugdal Inish Aleim, people who rationalize, people who are not willing to admit who they are. They're willing to present a case as if they're perfect and use that as a way of somehow creating a gloss on their personality and on what they do. They're the ones who are going to be, the retribution is going to be much greater against them. They don't even have the little terrors that they could have had. They could have said, you know, I'm a bad person, I admit it, I should have done better. That is a better way of responding to when you do something wrong than rationalizing it. Because you thought that you could rationalize, you could get out of it, you could get out of the situation via your rationalization. This posuk teaches us, this uh, episode with Yehuda confronting Yosef and his response is Yosef is saying, Ha'oid ovichai, don't give me your excuses. Now, by the way, once that was done, then he went ahead and he said, ani Yosef achichem. Okay, now that you've had your rebuke, now we can all hug, we can kiss, we can make up. You get it. Now you get it. Okay, now let's move on. That's the power of these two psukim at the beginning of Parshas Vayigash. I'm just going to uh, briefly continue with the introduction of the Rabbeinu Bachya on Parshas Vayigash because I think he has a very powerful idea. In fact, if you look at the source sheet, it's available on the website. You can download it or if you're on the... Uh, if you're on SoundCloud, you can look at the comments and you'll see that the, uh, the link is there. Or if you're on YouTube, you can see it's, it's actually in the description of the YouTube video. You can see the link. You can just download this source sheet. I'm not going to go through the whole Rabbeinu Bakya, but it's powerful. The idea is very, very powerful. I want to share it with you for a few minutes and perhaps you can look at the rest of it. It's all translated on the source sheet. You can print it off and you can use it. He begins, as he always does when he introduces a parsha. he begins with a, a quote from Novi. A gentle response turns away anger. A harsh word causes anger. That's the, that's the quotation from, uh, from Mishlei. It's in Perik Tezvav, Posuk Aleph of Mishle. You can look it up. It's a beautiful Posuk. And um, what the uh, Rabbeinu Bachya does is he actually, he puts this Posuk as the uh, motivation and the behavior of Yehuda in this particularly tense situation between him and the ruler of Egypt that he doesn't know is his brother. Shlomo HaMelech 
Shlomo Melech Yazir Bekosov Azeh is warning us in this posuk. Ala Odom Legadel Nafshoi Ala Hargil Tivoi Ula Shoinoi Bemaanerach. You know what Shlomo Melech is telling us? He's telling us that we need to become mature and measured and we need to perfect our character in such a way that we always speak in measured tones, that we're always careful in the way that we speak, even when we are confronted by the most extreme provocations. Why? Because a softly worded response to a very difficult situation is going to make sure that the person who's very angry with you won't continue to be angry. If you speak softly, if you lower the tone, that is going to be a situation that's going to, it's going to calm things down. If you get angry in response to someone's anger, then that's going to make things worse. But if you speak calmly, that's, uh, that's going to calm matters down. Uh, so, On the other hand, if you're provocative, if you're angry, if you're aggressive, it's only going to throw uh, gasoline onto the fire. It's going to make things a hundred times worse. It's going to create a tremendously difficult situation and it's going to turn something which is a difficult situation already into something that is far worse. That's what Shlomo Melech wants to tell us with this posuk from Mishlei Perik Tesvav. The Dovo Yodua says, um, says the uh, um, Rabbeinu Bachya, it's a well-known fact. And we know, says Rabbeinu Bachya, that speech is very powerful. In fact, he says, it's the most powerful aspect of the human condition. If you, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. You'll look at it inside. It's fascinating. He says, if you want to know which, what really separates um, uh, the human being from animals, it's the power of speech, the power of intelligent communication, of, con of well-considered communication, not gut reaction, not a lack of filter. You know, you know, there's people who just speak and whatever comes into their mind comes out of their mouth. By the way, that's how animals behave. Animals also communicate. They don't have the power of speech because they don't have the power over their communication. They're not considering their communication. It's totally instinctive. It's totally impulsive. But human beings have the power to control themselves. You can have a thought. I'm about to say something. And before that thought develops into speech that comes out of your mouth, you could stop it. There's actually a filter that could prevent it from coming out of your mouth. That is the power of speech that we have, that we can communicate. And it's in any language and it's in any given situation. So in a situation which is confrontational, you could create a much worse situation that's even more confrontational or you could calm things down. You can say things in such a way that you can lift people up or you can say things in such a way that you can bring people down. That is the power of speech and that's what Shlomo HaMelech is trying to tell us in this posuk in Mishlei. Says Rabbeinu Bachyon, this is what's so powerful, that Yehuda had at that particular moment a choice. He had a choice having heard that Yosef was accusing them falsely of a crime. They hadn't committed any crime and that he was incarcerating Binyamin for something that he'd never done. He had two choices now. He had the opportunity in this audience with the ruler of Egypt of inflaming the situation, of going to war, or he could calm the situation down. His nature, his temperament 
was quite an angry temperament. Yehuda was a powerful figure. He was a person who was ready to be confrontational when he needed to be. But though he had a much greater power. He had the power over his own speech. Vayigash elav Yehuda. Yehuda came close to Yosef and in the calmest possible tone. He said to him, you know what? I'm not angry. I just want to tell you that whatever it is that I need to do to get my brother free, I'm willing to do it. This powerful figure, this charismatic, this powerful looking person, he must have been a, such an impressive individual, Yehuda. And in front of the ruler of Egypt, where he could have really given him a hard time, he did the exact opposite. He spoke calmly, he spoke in a measured way, because he realized here was a situation where I can either make things worse with the way I address it, or I can make things better. Now, he had no idea, of course, that he was speaking to Yosef. The lesson, says Rabbeinu Bachya, that we can learn from Vayigash Elav Yehuda, is Vehine Yehuda ben Yaakov hichzik b'mido hazois. He had the power of his, over his own speech. He was so strong in this. He was able to control himself even in this extremely challenging situation. He spoke to Yosef in such a calm way. Because he wanted obviously to reduce the tension, the anger. He realized that Yosef is angry. He wanted to calm things down. He knew that Yosef was so angry at the matter of having the stolen cup or found the stolen He had no idea how the situation had arisen. All he wanted to make sure that he did was to calm the situation down. With that, I'm going to leave it today. You can look at the Rabbeinu Bachi inside. Of course, I've also included this incredible Beis Halevi, this classic, classic piece of, uh, uh, of commentary by the Beis Halevi, Rabbi Yosheb uh, Halevi Soloveitchik, who the founder of the Soloveitchik dynasty about whom we know so, about which we know so much. And in the meantime, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening.